And so, Lord, we do lift our souls to you and to your word, and we pray that as your word is read now, that you'd give us ears to hear it. We also pray, Lord, that as your word is going to be talking about the kingdom of darkness, that um, you bind all work and workers of the kingdom of darkness from interfering with the preaching and the hearing and the receiving and the responding to your word. And so we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. I've asked Stephanie to come and to read our text this morning. We're carrying on in Acts, so we backtracked from where Derek was three weeks ago when Philip went to Samaria. And uh, you remember that great persecution broke out against the church and that, that, that persecution became the bridge. That obstacle to the gospel became the bridge, Derek said, for the gospel actually beginning to go out of Jerusalem into the nations. And we ended with there was great, great joy in the city. And then we backtracked and we went back to Acts 1 and Acts 2 and we looked over the last two weeks at Jesus as the risen, ascended king who Mark talked to us about as saying to his disciples, I'm going to ascend, but you go and wait in Jerusalem until you're clothed with power from on high. And then we saw last week through Pastor Gina, Acts 2, that the church was clothed, the church that had already in at least a number of them received the Holy Spirit as Jesus breathed on them, was then clothed with power and was Peter was able to get up and stand up in front of 3,000 people and preach repentance where it might have meant his death. So Jesus is king. He clothes his church with power. And then now we go back to Acts 8 and Stephanie's going to read what happens next. Acts 8, 9 through 25. It's on page 1703. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, 
Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Stephanie. We're going to hear something this morning, and I'll, I'll tell you the main theme of this passage in a minute, that I hope sounds familiar. And when something starts to sound really familiar, like you hear it again and again, that's when you go, oh, Lord, this must be really important to you. Help me to pay attention. So the main theme of this sermon is that love and power cannot be separated in the kingdom of God. That love and power are both necessary for obedience to Jesus Christ's command to be a witness to him and to seek after and to extend his kingdom on this earth. You cannot have one and not the other and be an effective disciple. But we're going to see what happens when you've got one and not the other or the other and not one. And I want to start this sermon in the middle of the text because I, I think, I suspect that there's something in here that should have tripped up at least a few of you as you heard it. And that's this. When they arrived, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard, I'm reading at verse 14, that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They'd simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. You, sh- you should be saying, wait a minute. What do you mean? They received or had not yet received the Holy Spirit. Paul says to us in 1 Corinthians 12, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Doesn't get any clearer than that, does it? If you're making the profession, Jesus, you are Lord. I believe in you. I, I trust in you. I follow you. I surrender my life to you. You're doing that by the Spirit of Jesus, by, by the Holy Spirit. Making that profession brings you into the kingdom of God. And as a part of coming into that kingdom, you receive a new spirit. That's what the Old Testament prophesied. Ezekiel said you'd get a new heart. God would put a new spirit within you. So how is it? That these believers that are baptized, professing Christians, it says, had not yet received the Spirit. Huh? Well, here's the clue. It says, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. This is why, this is a really, really important distinction, and it's why we've had Stephanie teaching for the last eight Wednesdays on the person and the work of the Holy Spirit and laying a biblical theological foundation for understanding the Holy Spirit's work. Because in all of Scripture, there are, from start, Old Testament to finish, there are two motifs of the Spirit's work. 
One motif is the inner work of the Spirit to produce righteousness in the life of a believer, to produce hunger and thirst for right living, or the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace. When God gives you a new heart and he changes your heart, you want to live like God. You want to change your ways. You want to speak like God. It's the inward work of the Spirit. The second motif is the upon or outward work of the spirit. And they're related. We can talk about that later, but all the way through the old Testament and the spirit of the Lord came upon so-and-so and they did some action to advance the kingdom of God. They judged, they prophesied, they ruled, they discerned, but upon. And when you get to the new Testament, both of these words for upon and within are translated the same way in English. We just say they were filled with the spirit. But they're talking about two different kinds of being filled with the Spirit. One is filled with the Spirit, and the other one is having the Spirit come upon for some action. Okay? And so what what Acts and Luke is saying right here is that these believers who are in Christ and Christ is in them have not yet had the experience that they had at Pentecost of being clothed with power. They've not had the experience of having the Spirit come upon them so that they know I've got the power of God to be an effective witness. I can go into a hostile territory. Some of them will lose their lives. We know that. But the apostles think it's so important that they have this experience that they know that they've been clothed with power, that they come all the way from Jerusalem to bless these people that they used to call half-breeds, that they now are welcoming into one family and to lay their hands on them and to pray for them because they discover they haven't had this experience. Well, Lord, they need empowerment too. Lord, pour out your spirit upon them. So that's what's happening here. Okay, We, we ought not to understand that these, that these converts don't have the spirit of the Lord in them. And another way of understanding it is when you're born again into the kingdom of God, you've got, you've got an inheritance in Christ. Christ is in you, but you need to grow up in him, right? God looks at every single one of us and he says, perfect. I see you through Christ. You're perfect. You have his righteousness. And then he says, now you got to grow up into my righteousness, right? You got to, you got to look like me, grow to look like me. It's the same thing happening with this, um, with this experience here. He clothes them with power and then they have to grow up into the power of the Lord for effectively witnessing to him. Okay. So two motifs of the spirit, spirit coming upon is what's happening right here. Now, why do they need the Spirit upon them? Because Philip's leaving. Peter and John are leaving. And guess where they're left? On their own, in hostile territory, where, what does the text say to us? Satan has been running rampant. How? Simon and sorcery. What sorcery? Here's some synonyms. Witchcraft, wizardry, magic, black magic, enchantment. In a nutshell, it it is when a person calls upon and involves themselves with demonic powers and through that calling upon gains real power or insight or abilities that they then exercise in the natural realm. 
So let me, let me run you through scripture and give you a few examples of this because it's all the way from Genesis to Revelation. Literally the last chapter of the Bible talks about sorcerers. But look back at, here's, here's an example in, um, 1 Samuel 28. Saul has disobeyed the Lord and he's in trouble and God's not talking to him anymore. All of a sudden he's going, I can't hear God. And so what does he do? He goes to the witch of Endor, 1 Samuel chapter 28. And he disguises himself because um, at this period in time, there's been a ban on uh, sorcery, rightly so, in Israel. And it's been decreed that anyone who interacts with a witch or a sorcerer will be killed. And so the king gets disguised and he goes with a few accomplices and they go to the witch and he says to her, now call up from the dead the spirit of Samuel, because that he was the prophet who uh, Saul had done a lot of interacting with, and have Samuel uh, come up before you. And she says to him, uh, don't you know this has been forbidden? Like, I don't want to get in trouble. And she says, uh, he says, you will not get in trouble. And so she calls on the spirit of Samuel, and up he comes. The spirit of Samuel comes up, right? In f- and all of a sudden, she gets freaked out. Because Samuel reveals to her that she's dealing with Saul. And so she hits the ground and goes, what are you doing to me? And Saul says, just ask him this question. And and so she, she turns around and she asks the spirit a question. And he reveals a double judgment upon Saul that comes true and Saul loses his life. Now this is a bit of a tricky one to explain because um, she's a witch and yet somehow in God's providence, her in interaction with the supernatural brings her to the spirit of a saint who's been deceased and God's allowing it for his judgment. Okay. But I just want you to see that's a picture. Somebody is a middle person. What, what's another name we often call them? Middle mediums, right? Medium spiritists who's interacting with a very real demonic realm through which they get knowledge, power, information that they use in the, in the natural. You go back to Exodus and God sends Moses to uh, confront Pharaoh to deliver his people. And he said he gives him power and he tells Moses what he's going to do because Pharaoh needs a sign. Pharaoh's hard hearted. He's rebellious. He's not going to let go of his people, of God's people. And so God tells him, you throw your staff on the ground and it will become a snake. So Moses throws his staff on the ground and it becomes a snake. What happens next? Pharaoh melts in fear. Uh Uh-uh. He calls his magicians and his sorcerers. And strangely enough, they have the ability to turn their staffs into snakes. This is why the prophets from the beginning all the way through the Old Testament, right on through to Revelation 22, strongly, completely forbid anything of the like. Because that power is real. It's not equal to God in any way, shape, or form, but it is real power that most often draws human beings in under the guise of deception that they will become powerful, but what happens is they become controlled by the power they're seeking to control. So they get controlled even as they exercise it to control. People that are especially susceptible to this are people that are hurting. 
So here's Simon in the text practicing sorcery. It's real power. So you can imagine, we don't know, the text doesn't say what he's doing, but he's amazing the people. So maybe he's got knowledge about them that, that there's no way for him to have except by the, by the demonic. Well, folks, here's where it hits the rub. Let's just pretend that your child is sick and dying and there's no knowledge of a God who loves and heals. And the only knowledge of any power that can do anything is Simon the Great. And so you go to Simon because he's got knowledge, but you don't know if Simon's going to respond. You don't know what you're going to hear through him. You just have a sick child. And all you're doing is you're wanting to get your child healed, right? And so Simon, what's he going to do? He's going to manipulate. He's going to extort. He's going to want money. He's going to twist. He's going to bring you under his control and influence. He might want to exert sexual favors. I mean, this stuff gets nasty and manipulative. It's the kingdom of darkness, right? And so, and so it draws you in and it draws others in and they live in a state of fear and control. So it says all the people of that area were amazed by him. They called him the great power. Translation. They lived their lives afraid. Okay. What I want us to hear is that these two words, fear and control, are like twin pillars or foundations in the kingdom of darkness, whether it's through involvement with sorcery or witchcraft or many other things. And just before I, I, I shift us, and I'm going to ask you a question that I want you to respond to. I want you to know that all of these are on the rise dramatically in North America, especially in Europe, which has further ago unhitched themselves from the Lord. All around us, in our schools, uh, in the libraries, you go into the library and you, you start looking at books on sorcery, witchcraft, wizardry, full. Online, don't even search it. The whole world. Okay? So now, fear and control. I'm naming those two things. Where else, as twin pillars, where else do you see fear and control at work? This is, in the text, it's a stronghold. Where do you see fear and control creating strongholds that keep people in bondage? Just name them. If you... Drugs. How do you see fear and control at work in, in drug use? You don't want to face reality. So addiction. Okay. So what addiction? So I'm afraid to face what hurts and I try to control, I try to control it with my substance use and I get stuck in a cycle of fear and control. Good. What else? Relationships. Relationships. How do you see that? Okay, Vic's saying it comes it, ha- it comes through relationships. Um, many of you will know that his wife was involved with Wicca and witchcraft, and then he's saying that had a strong influence on me and on our relationship. Control was a very strong, and and it, fear were both strongly present in the relationship. Where good? Where else? Um, 
abuse situations. Good. Where there's control of the victim, it creates fear. I was thinking of that um, as I as I prepared for this sermon. I came across this story of a woman from Grand Rapids named Ruth Rondon. Anybody heard of her? So she was she was trafficked. She was a victim of sex trafficking for 18 years from the late I think it was the maybe the mid 70s to late 80, late 80s early 90s. And um, when you ask the question, how can someone be stuck in something like that for 18 years and not get out? That's your answer. Fear and control. Because I was I was thinking right beside that we've had this whole hashtag Me Too, right? Well. If this abuse is so prevalent, why is it only coming out now? Because people live in fear of what will happen if I speak about it and they've been controlled. And actually, you see it, you see it, um, working upon them as victims, but then through them in some of their responses because when now that it's become real public, you can see the real unhealthy ones are actually exert using it as an opportunity to turn around and try to control the one who controlled them. Right. I don't know if you're catching that on the news, but some of it's just so nasty. So fear and control produce these strongholds. Anyone want to name another one? Alcohol. That's good. It's connected to the addiction. Shame. Say some more, Jan. Yes, yes. That's like so common. Um, so Jen's saying we go through something, something happens to us and we become ashamed. And in our shame, we're afraid to share it with someone. And as we don't share it, we then become controlled by it. So a fundamental principle uh, is that things that are not brought out into the light, they're kept in the dark are footholds for the kingdom of darkness to oppress us. When we bring things out, healing, light can come on, onto them, healing, forgiveness, right? So shame is a, is, a, is a place where fear and control can take root. Good. Why, why am I spending uh, so much time establishing this and sort of the commonness of fear and control? Because of what comes next. Where's my Bible? Let let me um, double back and read what happens right before our text. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, They all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in the city. And then later on in our text it says, when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God, another king, and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So what's really important for us to hear is that Philip and God through him don't just come with good news. Hey, I've got really great news. There's a new king. His name's Jesus. He died for your forgiveness. He's risen from the dead. He's king. Yup. 
but it's not just a proclamation. It's a demonstration of the reign or the kingship of Jesus Christ. It's a demonstration of the delegated authority of Jesus to bring healing, to drive out evil, right? There's power in the name of Jesus. We sung about that this morning. There's power in Jesus' name to do these things. Now, why is that so important? Because Simon himself understands power and he can see he doesn't know the Lord yet. He doesn't, I don't think he knows very much about who the Lord is, but he can see there's something and there's someone greater than me. I've been meddling with this stuff, but I can't do that. I can't bring healing. I don't love like that. I don't have the ability to. And it's the power demonstration that actually brings the repentance on, on the part of Simon. It's the power demonstration that convinces these people that are under the control of Simon and witchcraft and the demonic that Jesus is real. In other words, love alone is not enough. Love has got to be commingled or commixed with the power of the Lord. And they can't be separated. Okay, This is why we keep saying we need to learn about and grow in the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We need to learn about and grow in. And so the uh, apostles come and they lay their hands and something happens. Text doesn't say what, but Simon responds to it. He sees something. So is it like when Peter went to preach to Cornelius' house and the Holy Spirit fell on them and they're speaking in tongues and they're prophesying? Or is it like Pentecost? Or is it like in Samaria in Acts chapter 19 where Paul lays his hands on him and, and the same thing happens? Well, we don't know. Something happened. Simon saw something that he wanted. And so Simon asks, can I pay you for this ability? And what do we see here? But Simon's old nature popping up, right? And so this is really fun for me. We spent uh, two weeks ago when Stephanie was teaching, she felt led to use this text and had us all reflect on it. She didn't know that it was my sermon text a couple weeks later. But as we were reflecting, a group of 12 of us, um, some, and one in particular, really struggled to say, how is it that... A believer in Jesus could say words like this. How is it possible that someone who truly professes to follow Jesus is Simon can't be a Christian. Can't be. That's where this person was landing. It just cannot be possible. How can that be possible? But you go back to the text and the text says. Simon himself believed and was baptized. So what's happening? Well, Simon's taken with him into the kingdom of God. He's recognized there's a Lord and I'm not him and I've been messing with stuff and I need to repent. And so he believes and he comes in. But he comes in with an understanding of God and of the spiritual world that's completely shaped by and reflects the kingdom of darkness. 
So he's learned about relationships that control and having control is a way to get what you want. And he doesn't know what God's like yet. He doesn't know about the character of God as loving. He doesn't know about a God who gets down on his knees and washes feet. That's not in Simon yet. Simon just sees power and he wants power because power has always been appealing for power's sake and for what it gets him. And so he's got a learning journey to go on. And he's come to faith, but his heart hasn't changed. And I want us to notice something. Peter doesn't rebuke Simon's request for power. He rebukes Simon for the fact that his heart isn't right and that he's full of bitterness. He says, you're not going to have any share in this ministry. What's this ministry? Well, it's praying for people and seeing them be filled with the Spirit, seeing the Spirit come on them so that they can be effective witnesses. And he says, you can't share in that with us because your heart's not right. So we need power. If we as individuals and we as a church are going to be effective in leading people out of the occult, in leading people out of trafficking, in leading people out of abusive relationships, in ministering, healing, love of Jesus Christ, we need power. But that power needs to come through a heart that is right and that's filled with the love of God. And anything that's not of God that's in us will get in the way of right Jesus-oriented use of power. Knees. I want to tell you how the Lord um, taught me this. You've all heard the, I think, the story of my, some of you lived it, my early years here at Gold Avenue Church where I just began to become aware that I wasn't aware of the work in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. God took me on a steep learning curve and I began to ask God to clothe me with power so that I could minister more effectively. And I want to read to you something, a note that I wrote to myself in August 2012. Because when I first started asking the Lord to clothe me with power, his answer was no. You're not ready. This is what I wrote to myself. We cannot teach or preach with power unless we first possess the power to love those whom we would teach. But the power to love first needs the willingness to die. Because in order to truly love another in the same way that Jesus loves them, we will need to be willing to lay down our life for them. Jesus did not love merely with words, but in action and in truth. And whoever claims to live in him must walk as he did. So some of us sitting here this morning have heard the power theme over and over and over and have responded at varying degrees. Some of us have thought, well, that's interesting. I'm glad that you're so excited about it, Pastor. Some of us have heard the invitation and said, I I do need to grow in this area. Some of us have just sort of tuned it out. 
and said, I'm not sure what to make of it. But the Lord says to every one of us, invites every one of us to be clothed and grow in the empowering that is in and with and through his spirit so that we can effectively lead people from darkness to light, glory to glory. If you're sitting here this morning and you've not said, Lord, clothe me with power, there's another opportunity after the service to come to one of the prayer teams. Some of us are sitting here this morning and we're hearing about love and a right heart and things that might be in our heart that might get in the way of the flow of the Lord through us. So it could be bitterness that that's raised in the text. It could be fear. Fear gets in the way. I'm afraid. I'm afraid of what people will think. I'm afraid of praying for people. I'm afraid I won't get the right words. I'm afraid that I'll mess up. I'm afraid this. I'm afraid that. And the single greatest command in all the scripture is do not be afraid because of the character of our good and loving father in heaven. And so maybe it's fear that needs to come out of the heart. Some of us might need to confess apathy, some pride. Some of us might just have unhealed wounds, places in us that hurt that need to get the Lord needs to minister to so that we can be effective, joy-filled witnesses. Um, Whatever it is, what we're seeing in this text this morning is that the Lord weds constantly love and power. He does it so that people like those in Samaria and on the west side can come out and into freedom, and he does it through us. Not just through apostles, not just through Philip, but through the Samaritans who are going to go on and share the gospel. And so let's close and um, respond to the Lord. God, I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, where right in the middle of two chapters that tell us that you manifest or make present your spirit's power through each one of us and that exhort us to eagerly hunger and desire for spiritual gifts, right in the middle is this chapter on love. And I thank you that all through your word, we see your love and your power together. And I pray that you'd increase them in each life present in the life of everyone who's not here, but is a part of this church family and in this whole church. Lord, grow us up and grow us deeper in what it means to love the world as you love the world. And grow us up and deeper into maturity in being witnesses that also have know how to work with your power to bring freedom wherever you send and have us represent you. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.